In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name is Hunter Mulcair and this is a podcast all about psychology. As a psychologist, I work predominantly with cancer patients and tonight I wanted to do an episode about what it's like to work in oncology. So instead of Amy sitting here with me tonight, I've got our first guest on the pod, very excited, friend and colleague, Dr. James McCracken, who is a medical oncology registrar, soon to be medical oncology fellow. And I worked with him at Northern Health, seeing his patients and seeing his team's patients. And uh, he managed to put up with my dumb questions about medicine. All these questions about blued. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> uh, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, Hunter. And uh, what a privilege to be your first guest. That's it, friend of the pod. So uh, before we get started, why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got into medicine? So it's a sort of starts a long way back now. I was working in community mental health in Fitzroy and uh, my wife was Laura, was doing a PhD and I was, I'd just finished my honours in psychology and thought about doing a de-psych but I thought the thought of two people studying that intensely in the house at the same time probably wasn't good for our, our uh, soon-to-be marriage. I wasn't loving my work in mental health, I was finding it frustrating. I worked in the homeless sector in an organisation called St Mary's House of Welcome which was a very formative time. I had Christmas drinks with some friends and uh, a very good friend of mine's girlfriend at the time was studying medicine in Sydney and everything she was saying sounded really appealing and I thought, oh, and I think I actually always really wanted to do medicine and just really never got the marks. And so I sat the, I studied for the GAMSAT that summer and just thought, look, I won't do well enough. I'll close that door and keep going with my interest in psychology. And I put my applications in and I got an offer for an interview at uh, the ANU in Canberra. Yeah. I thought, I'll go over, go along and you know, see how I go. Uh, sat my interview and um, it didn't get accepted. I thought, that's fine. And was told they interview twice the number of people they have positions for and such. Yada, yada. Yada, yada, all the polite stuff. thought, that's fine. We'll just keep going on with psychology and started making some inquiries about doing a de-psych. And then one day I came home from work and found a large yellow envelope from ANU in the mail. I thought, that's enough, guys. Like, you really, <laughs> you've, you've told me you don't want me. That's, that's enough. And... Um, it was a second round offer to do medicine at the ANU. I thought, oh, and immediately I just thought, no, that's, it's going to be too hard. We won't do that. And Laura thought, look, let's, let's give it a go. Let's see how we, I, we, we accepted the offer. We actually, I deferred my position for 12 months. So we got married and um, we then packed up our little house in um, Flemington and then moved up to Canberra for four years. Wow. Yeah. And so I did, we were turning up to my first day and I'd gone from my paternal grandparents, my paternal grandmother lived in Canberra and I'd gone from living with my wife in a, in a house in Melbourne and Laura spent the first six months of my medical degree finishing her PhD in Melbourne yeah. to living in my grandma's spare bedroom. Yeah, right. And there was one night I remember just before my first day of medicine going, man, you better really like this because <laughs> this is a pretty massive sacrifice. Um, so I did medicine at the ANU in Canberra for four years and um, loved it, really sort of enjoyed it. What was the difference studying medicine versus studying psychology? What's, um, what's, what's the What's the first thing that comes to mind? I'm sure there's too many to mention. But. It's, it's, it's probably much more focused. I thought when, you were, when we were doing psych, there was you got such a, um, a choice of subjects and it, there's a bit more of a – I think the big difference is psychology really comes from that arts background but has that scientific insecurity to it as well. Yeah. Medicine, there was a lot of hard medicine, a lot of biochemistry, pathology, anatomy. 
exams as gatekeepers to make sure you'd learnt enough to pass through to that next step. There was also a lot of fluff, don't get me wrong. There was also a lot of less popular subjects. Um, so it was just, it was much more focused, I think. And the curriculum's prescribed to you, like you're doing a medical degree. There's no thought on, do I do this subject? Do I do that subject? These two things clash. Mm. Um, so it's very different in that regard. And, and um, I, I was saying this to Amy in one of the other pods, like I mentioned there's, there's just a lot more rote learning Oh, yeah. And versus sort of psychology is all about theories and, and learning how to apply theory and that kind of stuff. Very much so. A lot of a lot of rote learning, learning, you know, things like in biochemistry, there's a thing called Krebs cycle, you know, learning anatomy in terms of just knowing what things are and what they do. Mm. Yeah, it's been a lot of time. And there's, I think the, the comfort in that is there's a right and a wrong answer. Yeah. In psychology, I remember the frustrating thing of, you know, you'd write an essay on something or you'd uh, write up a paper and, Submit it thinking it was fantastic, but for many reasons it was then sort of torn apart by the examiners. Mm. Come on, guys. What? Yeah, I was sitting in the in the ward rounds, uh, multidisciplinary meetings, and watching the medical teams work, your teams work, mm. and it's quite clear. You know, there's like, okay, well, yeah, look on this bit of the scan. There's this thing, and this is what we think it is, and that's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And psychology is just so in, it's, it's in sometimes might be that way, mm-hmm. but. Probably like ninety five percent of the time, it's not that way. Mm. Yeah, you're very right. It's it's one of the it's one of the good things in some regards about medicine is that it's it's quite definitive. The hard part I'm finding is the further along in your training you get. It's have gone through my basic training at Royal Melbourne to into oncology training, and the further you get into oncology, you always thought it was very black and white. Yeah, there's certainly many more shades of grey. Yeah, the further along you get. Where when when was the decision to get into oncology? I've always been interested in cancer and cancer medicine. My maternal grandfather died of gastric cancer in his 40s when I was five and I thought that was something that just sort of was always talked about in our family. And my paternal grandfather died of metastatic colorectal cancer. Um, I was very close to him uh, as a paternal figure. And I've always just, I think I always paid a bit more attention to hearing the word cancer and such Mm. when it was sort of talked about in the media. I was actually going to be a surgeon when I was a medical student and every Christmas we'd come home and I'd spend a week with... Uh, Professor Michael Henderson, who's a surgeon at Peter Mac and a family friend of my wife's family and really enjoyed my time. And my second year out, I did a surgical year at Royal Melbourne and um, the demands of the job were just too much. You spend almost every waking hour, it felt like, sort of at, at the coalface. Um, and the culture was, yeah, they're admirable people. They do a hard job, but it wasn't the most supportive of, of environments. And I had a very young family at the time with my son was 18 months old and I felt I wasn't seeing any, any time with him. I mm. hardly saw him awake. And my friends were all doing internal medicine training and I thought maybe maybe that's the way yeah, forward. Yeah, I, I had a head surgeon say, you know, you have to give your life to surgery. Mm. You know, and like you sort of say, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly in awe of surgeons for the skill level and the knowledge level. Yeah. And, and, yeah, it's certainly I think you have to be able to make that decision if you can't make a decision. Yeah, and for the, the, the training they do in terms of there's a lot of what we call unaccredited years they do before they then get into their programs. I worked with an orthopaedics registrar in um, Wangaratta who had been out of medical school for six years and had only then just got onto the orthopaedic program, wow. which is then a six-year program. And she'd moved around a lot. She was moving interstate to do the program. And so that's, that's, you've really got to love what you're doing to do that and yeah right and what do you like about oncology um i think i think it's the best job in the world um for many many reasons i think i say to my um patients i get paid to walk around and talk to people all day about what i think is the most fascinating disease yeah 
I think it's a, a wonderful, especially in terms of it's very people focused. It's a great balance between humanity and science, I think, in terms of uh, you get to meet people, you get to hear some very fascinating stories, you get to really know your patients, which is incredible. I looked after a gentleman recently who was um, telling me he's from a very small British town in, uh, in England called Crewe, and I'm sure, and was sure I'd never heard of it until I reminded him that Bentleys are made in Crewe. And he said to me, yes, my dad was actually a coach master at Bentley making Bentleys. And yeah. it's just something you always, I always try and find something out about my patients that's not related to their cancer, just to try and make it stick. And it's often a good conversation point to have that you're not talking about the cancer all the time. And in terms of science, I think that my thoughts were, if you're going to um, give your career to something, you'd want it to be something where in your working lifetime there will be great change. And I think that in mine will hopefully, you know, what, 40, 50, 60 years of working life, I think the practice of oncology now compared to what the practice of oncology will be then mm. will be vastly different. And to be a participant on that great ride will be such a great privilege. Mm. And you sort of mm. look back at where we were, we, we talk about my family when my grandfather had gastric cancer and he was having chemotherapy. God knows how what awful concoction was being given at that time. There was no CT scanner, so you had no idea whether patients were responding or not. Now we have PET scans that we do routinely. We have you know, agents that are much more focused, that are much more to- but better tolerated. You know, we have the immunotherapies coming on board, mm-hmm. which if you look at you know, a Jared Ruffhead as an example, five years ago would have been a, a death sentence and now mm. is a gentleman who's so been... So those are all the drugs that have MAB at the end of it. That's right, yeah. <laughs> the monoclonal antibodies or MABs. Right. <laughs> That's the psychologist talking. It's like... I think that's a MAB drug. Mm. I don't know what that means. Yeah, and the, the, the drug companies are very clever. That the, so they have a generic name and a brand name. Mm-hmm. So the brand names are almost unpronounceable. Yep. Sorry, the, the generic names. So Pembrolizumab is probably one of the kinder ones. But yep. its brand name is Keytruda. Yeah, Keytruda, and it's much, much easier to remember. And everyone's heard about Keytruda. Ron Walker had Keytruda and it cured him and can my mum have Keytruda? Yeah. Um, and they very cleverly in their marketing, all of their trials where they've shown um, whether it works or not, are called the Keynote Studies. Yeah, right. And their competition is a drug called Nivolumab or Opdivo. Yeah. And they have the Checkmate Studies. Yeah, right. Very clever. That's a whole podcast in and of itself. <laughs> so uh, I got you to look up and talk about or bring in an article. Uh, so what's the article? And uh, So I recently went to a uh, conference in Chicago called the American Society of Clinical Oncology uh, Meeting, which was it's the biggest oncology conference in the world. So it's 30,000 people coming to uh, this incredibly large building that's just absolute chaos for four yep. days um, a very inspiring and intimidating time at the same time where you meet some clinicians who uh, are doing incredible things but one of the streams there is for fellows and registrars and sort of early career oncologists and they have a bit more of a a involved approach rather than just focusing on you know the the treatment of breast cancer or the treatment of you know melanoma there's talk on you know uh, interview techniques talk on you know developing your career talks on involving in research but also in terms of practice and one of the topics that was discussed was on um, resilience which is a I think an important topic in oncology because it's whilst it is an amazing job it asks a lot of you Mm. and I think that you've got to be have a sense of maturity is probably not the right word but a sense of awareness of yourself that when you're practicing to know when you're out of resilience when you're approaching that burnout mm. type of crowd. And it was an interesting presentation by 
Faye Bubocki, who's from the University of Chicago. And some of the things she talked about was the protective factors within... Well, actually, some of the things she talked about were the contributing factors initially. So in oncology, it's certainly working long hours with um, seriously ill patients. So I guess there's the, the parts of our job that are systems-based, so having to fill endless streams of paperwork out, you know, endless electronic documentation, which really, I guess, is not unique. But there's time sacrifices that you know, you could be using for better things in your day. Mm. Um, but some of, the, some of the statistics were staggering in terms of... So I guess the way she was phrasing it was resilience is a protective factor against burnout, but at the same time the two aren't mutually exclusive. No. Um, and I think that, you know, I get the impression resilience is like a tank of petrol in some regards, that, you know, you've got a certain amount of fuel in your resilience tank mm. and when that, when that you know, empty light comes on, it's time to sort of go and fill up. Yeah, I'm not... Yeah, conceptually I'm uncertain because, I like... I think that that could be one way of looking at it. But then also part of it, I think that there's, I, I find it interesting that they, that there's these sort of, I guess, efforts to build resilience. And I mean, I think you certainly coming into working in oncology, you do build resilience. But I think by the nature of the problem, I think you are cut out for it on some level or not. Mm. And I think, you know, and I think there's not, you know, not everyone is. And and so I kind of wonder whether there's, it fluctuates, but also whether there's like, as psychologists would call it, like a tray kind of element to it, which is, you know, there's a there's a certain group of people that will be always good at that. And then and from time to time, they do burn out and they need to take a break. But other times, so I don't know, yeah, I'm not sure how you conceptualise it. So. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. She, um in this presentation, sort of utilised a lot of discussions by Viktor Frankl. Yeah, right. Um, and talking about the, the concept of resilience being the ability to grow uh, and succeed in the face of adversity. So Frankl, he wrote something very famous. Very famous, I'm told. So famous that I can't remember what it's called. Well, anyway, I think it was something to do with the Holocaust. I think, it, yeah. I, think. I know, and it was about hope or like people who survived in the camps had sort of a sense of purpose or meaning or hope or something. I think, like you're, I think you're very right in saying that. I guess the thing now is it's been sort of operationalised by, you know, health psychologists and academically to try and, you know, test how do you develop resilience and what does it mean. And she talks about ten factors out of realistic optimism, facing fear, a moral compass, religion and spirituality, social support, role models, physical fitness, brain fitness, cognitive and emotional flexibility and also having a sense of meaning and purpose with also an ability to form warm and caring relationships with others, so-called secure attachment associated with greater resilience uh, and also giving a sense, a perception of personal autonomy and perceiving oneself as competent. That's I think a, a quite a complicated set of characteristics. Yeah. And, and some of them, like as what we were just talking about, some of them would be tray-like and some of them would fluctuate. Mm. Yeah, you know, so... I guess, you know, secure attachment, for example, is not going to be something that, you know, fluctuates, but a sense of mastery of what you're doing. Yeah. You know, when you're having a good day and you think, wow, I'm on today, it's great. Yeah. And there's some days where you think, wow, I just, how did I tie my shoes this morning? Never mind. Yeah. I mean, and sort of sitting as an ob observer in the, in the breast team, watching the breast team function. Uh, function. So, <laughs> so the, when I say breast team, I mean the breast oncology team um, and and so I would sit and watch the team and there'd be some weeks where 
it'd be quite apparent to me that several members or the whole team was 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 under the pump, and then other other weeks it was it was very different, and they were coping much better, and and it wasn't that predictable. You know, you think, oh, you know, maybe you know the week before Christmas might be difficult, but it's not always it's not always the case. It can be you know a week in February for some reason, or the middle of winter, you mm-hmm. know, for whatever reason, and yeah. It seems like it's on top of everyone for whatever reason. I think it's times when they talk about some of the barriers to, I guess, there's the the way I was thinking about this is there's the personal factors of resilience and then there's the factors that sort of try and challenge that within you. And there's also then the systems that you come up against in terms of, and I think this has probably been very prevalent when we talk about, there's been some, I guess, media issues being discussed at the moment in some of the Fairfax media about junior doctors and Mm. their, their sort of resilience. And colleague of mine, Tessa Kennedy, who's the AMA um, Council for Doctors in Training president in New South Wales, wrote a piece for the Sydney Morning Herald talking about if we have an unexpected death with our patients at in hospital, there's a audit, there's you know an investigation performed mm. to try and identify risk factors that, as they say, look at those sort of the holes of the Swiss cheese that have lined up to allow these events to occur. But within the spate of these recent tragedies in. Uh, New South Wales, we call them a tragedy. We sort of get together about them and then we move on and yep. don't acknowledge it any further. And it's, uh, I think, looking back at the system as they talk about in terms of the demands of, as a, as a doctor, while I come from a very working class family, and it was always seen as being a good thing being a doctor because you always had work because there was always sick people. And mm. in times of economic downturn, that was important. But as a, doc- as a junior doctor in Australia, you're employed on yearly contracts. There's no sort of sense of ongoing employment. Uh, there's also a sense of always trying to impress people because, you know, if you enjoy where you work, go out of your way to try and impress the bosses and therefore when you finish your training, you know, they might look favourably upon you and offer you a job. It's not a, an area where jobs are advertised. There's not. Transparency is probably a bit strong, but it's certainly a sense of when people are putting together a unit, they really want people such as that breast unit you talk about where they can work together as a team because a lot of the time you're under the pump, you're making some big decisions, you want members who are going to pull their weight. And so there's a sense of having to try and impress all the time. Mm. But sometimes when you've had a tough day, you don't feel like going home and doing that project that you should be doing or whatever Mm. it might be to try and impress the bosses. And then also, like I would say, being able to trust one another like so, uh, it's not just being a impress, impressing, you know, your the powers that be, but also knowing that if we give this job to James, if we give this job to Hunter, if we give this job to whomever, mm. that that job will get done, yeah. or it will get done to a good enough standard. And I think you're very right, and I think also support from your team that the decision you make, even if it's a decision that they might have made differently you have made that decision, that decision has been made and we support you in making that decision. Mm. And, you know, it might, be, it might be something as simple as a treatment regimen that you think is appropriate or uh, admitting a patient, whatever, you know, the, the choice of whatever it might be. I think yeah. that you're right, that sense of trust and, and a belief in your competency from somebody else. Mm. I think it's often a, a, a tick in your favour as well. Yeah, and, I, yeah, I mean, as, as a psychologist working in that environment, I work in two different oncology departments, two different hospitals. I'm, I'm frequently the only psychologist there, you know, and then I might get supervision, you know, sporadically uh, as, you know, when my supervisor and I can arrange it. So, you know, on the day having to make a call and not being able to, and then 
making you know and hoping that the medical team are kind of cool with that it's kind of it's a i often find that i have a little neurosis about that <laughs> i think it's, it's a good point i'm really fortunate at the moment though i work in a very big team so uh, i'm one of two registrars we have four residents or, or sort of junior doctors who are our, really our workhorses for the ward and we and we have a very supportive group of consultants and yep. part of the things this study talked about that was also important was having people above you being interested in your health yeah, right. And just making sure that, you know, are you well? How are you? And maybe asking you something outside of work. You know, yep. how's your, how are your children? You know, the footy on the weekend, whatever it might be. Yeah. Maybe seeing you as a person, I guess, in that regard. But I think also from a junior doctor point of view, we always, we're very protective and very supportive of our junior doctors because we're aware that uh, it's a very emotionally heavy workload that they're asked to do and wanting to make sure that, if they're having a rough day that they feel supported and they feel you know, that people are available and open to them to ask questions but also to we have a, a fair bit of sort of fun banter amongst us and a polite ribbing of each other and there's always sort of coffee going around and um, catching up for drinks on the weekend just to try and build a sense of camaraderie and team and support of each other yeah because i think on the on there are days where that is what gets you over the line mm. yeah is knowing that you know, you might have had a really bad morning, yeah. but the team still accepts accepts you for who you are. Yeah, and I think and I think it's validating if someone says to you, "Wow, that's a tough morning." Yeah, I mean, what do you what do you think is special about oncology versus other areas of medicine? I think a lot of our very good question. Um, we, I think, cancer has a big stigma associated with it. So there's some diagnoses that you would get in other specialties that would have a worse prognosis than certain cancers so for example there's a, a subtype of breast cancer called you know hormone receptor positive breast cancer where with incurable disease we would still measure your prognosis in years mm. so we would we should be expected to have somewhere between three and five year survival and there are women who obviously don't achieve that and there are women who go well over that sort of into the 10 20 year survival if you've had a rip-roaring heart attack your survival might be measured in months yes or years yeah. or, right. a, or a stroke for example yeah and so i think cancer has a sense of i think a big part of it is a sense of helplessness from patients a sense of you know they're not in control of their cancer and their cancer is really dictating it to them and one of the things patients often describe to me is that anxiety of when you're seeing them in the clinic they're there to get their scan results and they'll be sitting outside and my appointment was at quarter past 10 and it's now quarter to 11 and why are they making me wait is mm. you know are they sitting out there going over my films to make sure or what's going to be said and um, there's this... Oh, and I, I, saw, I saw the doctor in the hallway and he didn't look... Like he saw me and then looked away. All very, very natural reactions to have if you're mm. a patient. But, you know, he, um, that doctor may have been <laughs> thinking about the parking ticket they got, you know, whatever. But Exactly. Exactly. I'm thinking, geez, I really need to go to the toilet and I'm going to get a coffee on the way back and the other things that might be going on. But it must be an incredibly anxiety. I always say to my patients, you know, I'm, I'm a cancer specialist but I've never had cancer. I don't know what this is like. That's right. But I hear these things from people commonly and that anxiety must be crippling. And mm. they say, you know, that sort of three-monthly sort of cycle of having it. So I think in terms of your patients seek a lot more. There's a great medical professor who talked about med being at medical school was like learning the maps of going out to sea. Yep. And being a junior doctor was like going out on a boat for the first time and learning how to sail. And I think sometimes being an oncologist is a bit like being the captain of that ship in some stormy seas yep. with your patients on board and helping them navigate through that really tough time. I think a big part of it is a lot of our patients do die. 
yeah. which is can be quite confronting. But part of the other thing that's talked about in this article was an intervention they performed with a group of medical students where uh, using mindfulness and CBT over a 10-week mm. course and found that their uh, Beck depression inventory scores and their oh. anxiety scores dropped significantly in that time in terms of situations they were exposed to that doesn't demanded a sense of resilience from them. And I think that as you come further along in oncology and you see that um, part of what, when people ask me what do I do as a medical oncologist, you say, well, care for patients with cancer and that might sound really simple but I think care's got a big word to it in terms of part of that might be chemotherapy part of that might be just supportive care in terms of pain relief you know anti-nausea mm. drugs but also you know palliative care is a significant component of that as well mm. in being able to help families loved ones achieve a good death in that regard yeah right do you psychologists are trained you know the whole thing about psychology is we're trained to deal with people's emotions you know there's no ambiguity about that as a, if you're going into any kind of clinical practice that's what you're going to be doing whereas and listening to you talk like the the thing that i'm struck about with oncology is that the emotional supportive role that a oncologist has is seems to me different to other areas of medicine you're very right i think that a lot of the time you were there to uh, a lot of it i think there's a significant element of by no means to insult the very awesome work psychologists do but there's a lot of psychology i think that we do in terms of reframing and i often think that knowledge is power in some respects that some people hear the word cancer and incurable cancer and think i'm dead tomorrow or you yeah. know the next day i think being able to explain to patients well that whilst this might be incurable there are still treatments available there are active treatments and you're not dying tomorrow or the next day or the week after or the week after that. We, we would anticipate months left in life and we say that whilst we can't give you more life, the life we give you should be of an excellent quality from here on. Mm. And, you know, or in some cases you do actually give more life than mm. if they didn't have it, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah and it's, yeah, exactly. We, we improve their survival by, by treating them, but at the same time we encourage them to... So, so with, with that, do you... I mean, how is that taught to you guys to manage manage that emotional burden from the patients? Because because psychologists, we like mm. we have ongoing clinical supervision. Mm. It, it's expected that this is what we're going to be doing. I think psychologists are a particular breed. You know, we, we're attracted to the profession because of their personalities. Yeah. Talk about that from from medicine for oncology. It's a it's a very good question. I think it's probably an area that medicine lacks greatly. That um, and one of the criticisms of medicine is. The teaching is focused on the academic side of things. Yeah. We're very fortunate at ANU to be, I think, the smallest medical school in Australia <coughs> and we had a very strong clinical component to it. But at the same time, there's no... I think that you medicine and specialty training really relies upon the apprenticeship model of teaching that you, know, you sort of see as people do and you tend to follow and you ask questions and the more you develop a sense of competency, you sort of go on yeah. from there. Uh, I think it's... One of my fortunate things is being a mature, being a graduate medical student is that you, I guess there's a sense of emotional intelligence you develop with life rather than with medicine that allows you to be able to just empathise and um, sympathise with patients and you know, acknowledge that it is a, a shit situation yeah. a lot of the time. For example, I had a, a patient's uh, now deceased partner call me uh, during the week just at work who was 
He was in his early 30s and died of metastatic colorectal cancer, which is incredibly uncommon. But unfortunately, in people under the age of 40, it's a very aggressive disease and often diagnosed very late. And that was emotionally very tough because it's when they're younger than you, it's quite hard. Um, but and you uh, you over identify potentially, yeah. but emotionally I don't yeah you know, I don't think I really have an answer for you other than to say I think it's probably the life skills you acquire along the way, yeah. um, and things you develop in oncology throughout your training through, and throughout medicine. You know, declaring your first death, for example, is a really confronting time. Wow. Um, I did a palliative care rotation as one of my first rotations as an intern, and thought I was petrified of doing it. I thought. You know, these patients die, How that's going to be really tough to do. Yep. But it was one of the most satisfying rotations in terms of achieving a, a, you know, these people are going to die and you can't change that. Yep. But what you can change is the, the the way they die, the experience the family has. It's an incredibly intimate process. In terms yeah, and yeah, so it's that reframing of the problem mm. into showing yourself and just showing others that, yes, uh, I can't do something, that this isn't hopeless, this isn't stuff like that. And so the... Yeah, and I, th- and I think, you know, that's not too dissimilar to psychology where you kind of go, well, you know, I'm working with cancer patients and you go, <laughs> like, uh, there's very little I can do as a psychologist to alter that outcome. Yeah. You know, cancer is not something that psychologists can do. I mean, maybe I can potentially get a patient to go in to see their doctor when, they sh- when they're not, mm-hmm. um, go and get a scan when they're avoiding it, that kind of thing. But mm. really we don't. <laughs> or like, or maybe... The other and the other thing is like maybe convince someone to have treatment. I've managed to do that once or twice. <laughs> I Fantastic. think good, but but yeah, we don't really like beyond that. But the way that I frame it is, yeah, you know, look, I'm able to help people through clinical skills and clinical stuff to get more out of what they're doing. Yeah, and and that's the enjoyable bit. Hmm. And I, and I think that enjoyable bit can balance it out or help to kind of, I guess, uh, counteract some of the shitness of working with, a, with you know, yeah, like you sort of said, the young person. I, I worked with a young girl who, she was 19 and colorectal and, um, you know, it was clear fairly quickly that this situation was not going to resolve <laughs> in a good way and I remember finding that very taxing and... Yeah, and so it's it's interesting which ones affect you and which ones don't. Mm. I think which cases do, and which ones, and which think, cases don't. But I think at the same time that there's a certain vulnerability that you afford yourself in in cancer medicine, coming from a whether it's coming from a you know a, as a clinician, as a psychologist, as a social worker, whatever it might be, where these are patients who are inc- incredibly vulnerable, and you. You do this all the time. There's a sense of experience and mastery to it that you can support them with. But I think the the flip side of that is you you make yourself think when they die, or you have to break bad news to them, and such. You're emotionally closer to them, and it can be more taxing. But at the same time, it's a privilege and a maybe allowing yourself to be humanly vulnerable at that time. Yeah, and I think and it's a privilege to be involved in these patients' lives in what is a very confronting and difficult time for them. You cry with them, you laugh with them, you know, you celebrate the small victories. Um, you know, when they have a scan that shows they're responding when they're, you know, they're going off on their holidays because suddenly they're feeling better and their symptoms are well managed. Mm. And you, you sort of, you ride those waves with them. And it's incredible. It's quite satisfying. I went to a, um, I went to a, I've only ever been to, I had a patient I looked after as a 
registrar as a as one of my in my very first year who was a young Melbourne artist who died of esophageal cancer, which is a very nasty cancer. And I saw his uh, ad for the ad for his funeral in the paper, and I thought, no, I'm not gonna. You know, that's that's too close. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's about him. And the social worker for our unit messaged me and said, "Are you going to going to his funeral? I'm going to go." Well, okay, well maybe. And she really encouraged me to go along, and I went. And there was thousands of people at this funeral, wow. and it was a wonderful. So it was one of the best celebrations of life I've been involved in. But I was thanked by the family on the stage for you know being involved in you know the diagnosis and breaking the news and being involved in his care and such and i have such a distinct memory of uh he met diagnosis and informing him it was the day before his 30th birthday and it was myself him and his mum in his room at at the royal melbourne and they cried and i cried and i came back later that day to see how he was and look i'm really i'm really sorry that's really unprofessional to to cry i was very junior at the time he said, mate, it's fine. Yes. Like, if you didn't cry, I'd be worried. Like, what sort of jobs this guy got that he's not crying with his patients and being yeah. human and being a part of it? And um, the second time he came in for more chemotherapy, we caught up and had a coffee and chatted about mm. how he was going. And it was that part of being, I think, along for the ride that this guy's got cancer and he's going to die, but you can potentially make it a better experience for them by being involved and helping I like that being along with the ride, like so that you're not, and then you kind of you you roll with the punches. Yeah, you Um, you you pick them up when they're down, and you know you sort of high five them when things are going well. Yeah, and uh, I mean psychology, the the one of the findings is that therapeutic rapport is one of is has a distinct and clearly measurable impact on the outcome. Hmm. So, you know, if you've got Rapport with your patients, your patients be better, mm. right? And and that's doesn't matter what thing. And so I mean, I guess that's the same kind of very much. So. And I, I think that if patients have a sense of confidence and trust in you, and to say that patients have a very good bullshit meter with with clinicians, I think in general, from it being from a psychology, being from a medicine background, and which is important when you're starting that relationship out with them. That if they get a feeling that you don't know what you're talking about or you've missed something in their story, the the hackles go up. But I think when you're developing that therapeutic relationship and, you know, you might need to break news about a bad scan or you know, mm. things getting worse and there's going to be a change in treatment that they have a sense of confidence in you that whatever you recommend will be the right thing for them and have a yeah. sense of confidence and faith in you. The other part of that is as patients come towards needing end-of-life care, the, the family by involvement in that patient's care has a sense of confidence in you that stopping treatment's appropriate, that, mm. you know, looking after them's appropriate. And they're decisions you don't want patients to make themselves because because it's a – you want to be the ones making those decisions for them. It is paternalistic as that might sound because, mm. yeah, it's a big – it's a big call to make in terms of some patients are very brave to be able to do that and they're incredibly courageous. And a lot of the time you feel that you need to be the one to say, look, I'm really sorry, I think we need to stop because yeah. this is going on too far now. And things aren't working. And it's interesting, yeah. It's like that as you talk, is that that, that backwards and forwards, that cut and thrust. Hmm. Do, do you think that that's similar to other areas of medicine, or do you think it's sort of a particularly unique element to oncology? I think it's a unique. I'd like to think it's a unique element to oncology that you know, if you take infectious diseases, for example, where 
you either have an infection or you don't have an infection and we can treat you or we can't treat you. But having said that, I saw a patient with um, HIV just yesterday who's looked after by our infectious diseases team who coincidentally has a HIV-related cancer and his HIV specialist has been with him for 10 years and they have a great working relationship and yep. he's in great admiration of him. So I think that, look, it, it probably isn't unique to oncology, but it's certainly, I, th- I wonder if it's something we're potentially more more noted for. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, I, uh, uh, before we run out of time, I might, I might give a little bit of a talk about an article I came across. I could talk to you for about three hours about this <laughs> stuff. So the article I had was called Spectre of Cancer, Exploring Secondary Trauma for Health Professionals Providing Cancer Support and Counseling. This was in Psychological Services 2014 and by Lauren Breen and colleagues. It's a WA-based study. And so, look, I won't go through all of it, but they looked at people who work in oncology but not uh, not predominantly medical people. So people like myself, like psychologists, social Mm -hmm. workers... And they did an interview study. So they did, you know, they talk about, you know, there's high rates of burnout and, you know, oncologists have to compartmentalise feelings and all this kind of stuff. That Some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Mm. So they got 38 professionals, 11 psychs, 10 social workers, 7 chaplains, 6 nurses, 3 group facilitators and 1 medical practitioner. I guess they threw them in for kicks. Mm. Um, And people have been working uh, in cancer for three to 22 years, so a semi-structured interview about their work experiences and they took like an indirect approach to ask about secondary trauma so rather than sort of direct questions because I think that they thought that was better. They came up with four major themes. I won't, I'll, I'll say them all but then I'll, I'll talk probably just about one or two. So they came up, talked about sort of the role of, you know, counselling grief and loss. So this is kind of like you know, uh, helping people live until they die, using humour, mm-hmm. um, helping put in supports, helping people adjust to cancer. So which is that, you know, because really when you're getting treatment, you you become helpless and dependent in very, very many ways. Mm. So and then they talked about working with families. What was really interesting, yeah, so the emotional demands of cancer. So they talked about, having to learn to be comfortable mm-hmm. with your own mortality as working in in oncology. Mm-hmm. And they talked about the emotional load was a substantial component of their labour. You know, sort of that it's emotionally and psychologically draining and that it can be cumulative in the way that it builds up. You know, that, that kind of stress kind of mm. uh, can build up over time. And that challenge of holding holding that emotional load while doing your clinical work. Mm. So, I mean, I often think one of the differences that psychologists have to medical is that you guys can go, okay, we can do a test mm. or, okay, we're going to do this thing. I can see you're upset, but we're going to do this thing, mm. you know, and there's, you've got like a, a job to do other than the emotions mm. a lot of the time, whereas mm. psychologists, it is the emotion, is mm. the job. And so that can be quite, I think that can be quite challenging when you can see someone who's really upset and you're kind of really, you know, you you care about them or you have connection, but you you feel like you've got a role to play to keep yourself steady. It must it must be such an incredible burden to carry in terms of that weight of emotion into Yeah. It's it's I think you you get better at it over time, I think because you kind of learn how to hold that dissonance. You know, and when I was working I can't think of an oncology example, but 
the comes to mind when I was working with someone who had a personality disorder mm. and the, my supervisor said you have to accept and understand that there may not be much hope for this person in terms of how the, whether they'll improve emotionally in the way that they function. Mm. But she's, my supervisor said, but you have to be the hope, the candle that burns the hope in that clinical room. Wow. So, wow. And, and so, you know, and I think a lot of it actually kind of comes back to that, like what you're saying about reframing and then kind of going, well, you know, yes, it's palliative care, but yes, we can, there is things that we can do. Mm. They may not be the things that we want, which is I cure. Yeah. But, so I think that that's always very interesting. Talk about the importance of self-care to prevent burnout. Yeah. Um, Are there things psychologists, if I can ask questions, things, what, what do psychologists in who work in oncology do in terms of, self-care and preservation there's talking drinking drinking yeah, yeah i was gonna say that's what oncologists do as well i was um in clinic today and we were quite quiet this afternoon so i asked my bosses who i was sitting there with saying look i'm doing this awesome podcast tonight uh on, on resilience in um, and one of the things we were going to talk about was is resilience in oncology what do you guys do and these are seasoned professional oncologists mm, mm, mm. have been doing it for many years one of them is so is a, a female oncologist in her I think early 40s, and I'm assuming I'm terribly sorry if you're not quite that old. <laughs> Who, I'll, I'll cut that bit. <laughs> and she was saying that she is very protective of her weekends. Yeah. There is no work on the weekends. There is yeah. no study on the weekends. Yeah. That the weekends are her time yeah. and that time alone. And she goes to the gym every night after work. Yeah. Our professor is a gentleman who's incredibly academic and his argument that he's downgraded, he's, he's often a person is very clever in colorectal cancer that people come and see when they're you know, seeking a third, fourth or fifth opinion. Yes. And as he said, he often ends up with a very biased patient load. They're often very young and very sick. Yeah. And so his thing has been to somewhat to retreat into academia and just keeps pumping out amazing study after amazing study. Uh, it's just this balancing. Like I, I, like I, I think I, I, I have protected time mm-hmm. and I will do things that really – tickle the, the inner child, the vulnerable child, if you're a, a fan of schema therapy as I am. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I remember coming out of, I knew the, she used to work at PNMAC, but she was the head of PNMAC psychology. And I came out of, you know, the Nova in Carlton, the cinema there, and I'd just gone and seen Harry Potter, hmm. one of the Harry Potter movies. Right. And, she was, and she looked at me and was like, yes, you know, that's the, exactly the thing, you know. And, and, you know, previously I was doing, I'd done some community radio where I'd get up in the middle of the night and play music for four hours, mm-hmm. right? And you know, it's just, it's this kind of this really – so I think there's like – and when I come home, I don't do any clinical work. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no – like I leave work, clinical work is done for mm. the day. I don't uh, – extremely rarely would I do something. So I think there's that protecting time. But then also kind of do purposefully doing something that is solely for me. Mm-hmm. And then I think, and so that's the way that that I think has worked for me, right? You know, and I, I, I mean, I think it's a bit idiosyncratic, but I think that there's the much the same as what mm. you're talking about there. Do you, do you discuss work out? Do you, do you share your sort of work experiences with family with you know, probably probably, probably some members of my family, but you know, with some people, you know you kind of can get some odd responses because you can say you can find something that was absolutely hilarious and other people are sort of look sh- <laughs> shell-shocked. It's so very true. And, and, and kind of and, – and, and, and they're fighting back tears. And you're like, mm. oh, and, this, and we were laughing about this. And you're like, oh, no, hang on. 
They're so, not going to find that funny. No, not going to find that funny. <laughs> so, and, and it could be the genuinely funny thing mm. um, or it could be black humour. I, I once had a patient who was young with a, a bowel cancer and um, he was having a, he'd had a, a stoma bag uh, yes. crea- created for him and he was doing it really tough and we were at the bedside just chatting away and I said, look, tell me, I thought you're just going to go completely crazy. I was like, tell me something that's been, what positives have you had recently? He's like, you know, since the stoma bag, I've never lost a farting competition. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this kid's doing it really tough with, you know, hated the stoma, it was just really confronting for him. Um, and I told my, I told Laura, my wife, that and she's like, that's really actually just quite gross. I was like, yeah, but if you were there and, you know, we laughed and thought it was fantastic. She's like, that's good. Don't don't tell me those stories. Yeah, yeah, again. don't, don't yeah. need to hear about those. So I mean, uh, yeah, I think I think that there's a level at which you can discuss your work and a level at which you can't, and it's a fine line. And even amongst some other psychologists, yeah, yeah, I've, I always find it curious to see who would say, "Oh, I couldn't work in that." I had a colleague who's a forensic psychologist, and I was talking about my work. She said, oh, "I couldn't do that," and she just finished telling me a story about how she'd been working with someone in prison who'd been swallowing razor blades or something <laughs> I was just like wow it's like wow I, I i couldn't do that but i can do this so so i mean i think it, it it's very very interesting and it's interesting even within oncology from a medical point of view there's the various sort of camps so that you know the breast cancer guys look at the brain guys for example so there's a type of brain cancer called a glioblastoma which has a median survival of about 12 months and they look at the brain guys and say well how do you do that? Like this is this is awful, and the risk factors are very poorly known. And they look at the upper GI guys, so pancreas cancer is another horrible cancer. Mm. Well, how do these guys do that? So yes. it's, it's a few camps, I think, within psychology, within uh, oncology, that a similar feeling about it. Yeah, and just to circle way way back to something we were talking about before, mm. what I thought was interesting. What what's interesting is I think oncologists as a group, and, and you know, oncology nurses as well, they are typically very good psychologically and uh, and like so i can explain something and they'll just get it and it, mm. it took me a while to kind of get comfortable with that because because <laughs> it's like i've explained it and they got it and then they moved on it's like well that doesn't happen frequently to me and um we're just very clever people that's it but, you, you guys are <laughs> oh, or maybe i'm just bad explaining but and so it's interesting working in that environment because where i think i get respect from the clinical team will be because they will you guys will have tried working with someone and used your toolkit that works with majority of patients mm. and and it's and it's failed for whatever reason and then then they'll the referral will come I'll see them and then I kind of get them over the line or whatever or make some progress and and so that's that's always very interesting and that's where I think the team like kind of you feel that they trust you and then they see that they trust you. Know, they, they go, okay, yeah, you can do that. And it, yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of interesting kind of. I think many, many of us are, are firm believers that oncology is a team sport. Yes. That uh, we might be the, you know, the centre half, the midfielder or the centre half forward or something like that. But everyone's incredibly important in that role that, you know, if it's all good to give someone chemotherapy and look, it's not that hard. Maybe don't tell my uh, some of my more learned colleagues that, but it's it's important that people have a house and an income and can turn up to have their chemotherapy. And you know, this might be bringing back some sort of horrible, you know, sort of 
mum died of breast cancer and I've got breast cancer and there's yeah. this awful sort of traumatic experience that's been reawakened for them. And I think that whilst we get a lot of the glamour and glory for it, it's incredible. And just having good nursing staff that patients are cared for in the hospital well or cared for well when they turn up for chemotherapy is an incredibly important part uh, of it. Um, possibly the most important. Possibly the most unrecognised part of all of it. Well, should we take a break and we? uh, we'll come back and talk about some a, a medical version of things we came across. Mm. Yeah, you're on Two Shrinks Pod. Suggest reasonable explanations for things. You're listening to Two Shrinks Pod. This is a part of the show where Amy and I usually banter with each other and she picks on me. But instead, it's just me this week. So I'm going to just have to remind you to subscribe to the show if you're enjoying it. Tell people about it if you're enjoying it. Uh, if you can rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever it is that you look at podcasts, that'd be super. Because we want more people to know about the show and then that way we can grow our listenership and that way we can continue to do this for longer. Also look at our website if you want to check out any of the articles that we've been talking about. And you can also email us with any feedback, suggestions or comments on twotringspod at gmail.com. I think that's about it. Wow, I got through with my self-esteem unscathed. Back to the show. And we're back. So this is the, the things we came across segment of the podcast. So uh, James and I both, looks like we've both got one from the British Medical <laughs> Journal. So the, for, for those of you who don't know, the esteemed British Medical Journal, uh, which is published by the British Medical Association, a very tweed-rich group of oh, men, I imagine. I could imagine some high-quality tweed. Very good-quality tweed. Publish a... Um, their December journal is devoted to uh, weird and wacky, amusing topics, um, known as the BMJ Christmas edition. And throughout the year, they're taking uh, uh, submissions for it. What did you um, What did you find in BMJ? Uh, so you uh, you spend a lot of time on wards, hospital wards, correct? When you're hungry, mm-hmm. do, do you do you look at the nurses' station all the time? What off the top of your head, what are you looking for? So as an oncology registrar. The gold mine is the day oncology unit, so where people come for their chemotherapy. Because yep. families always turn up, chocolates, yep, baked goods, oh, baked goods, baked goods. When I was at the Northern, mm-hmm. there was a gentleman who was a very good baker, mm-hmm. and he'd come in, I think, one Friday a fortnight, and he'd bring a tray of jam donuts that he'd made. Oh. It was heaven. Mm. Um, so mm. that's that's the gold mine of where I try and tend to. Unfortunately, my workplace at the moment, the chemo day unit, is well away from my oh. ward. So I really need a really good excuse to go down there. That's disappointing. Disappointing. So uh, chocolates are a, a big thing yep. we always try and get. Pastries are good. But yeah. yeah. So, so the paper I've got is by Parag Gangjeng Dakaraka. Pronounce that incorrectly. I'm so sorry. This is a paper called The Survival Time of Chocolates on Hospital Wards. <laughs> A covert observational study. So the objective was to quantify the consumption of chocolates in a hospital ward environment. It was The design was a multi-centre perspective covert observational study. The setting was four wards at three hospitals where the authors worked in the UK. And the participants were boxes of Quality Street, so that's Nestle, and Rose's Cabri on the ward and anyone eating these chocolates. So this is a fabulous race. This is BMJ 2013. I'll just read out a few bits and pieces. We chose to study a 350-gram box of Quality Street chocolates and a 350-gram box of Rose's chocolates on the basis of their commonly given gifts and two of the leading brands in chocolates available in the UK. 
Pilot data investigating range of brands shows that these two boxes contain similar number of chocolates between 30 and 35 each. So the procedure, 10 a.m., the doctor, who was familiar with the ward, would covertly place boxes side by side in a prominent location in the main nursing reception area where gifts are normally placed. They would covertly record what time the boxes opened and what time individual chocolates were taken from each box using a pre-printed data collection form. It was all anonymous and kept their chocolates under continual visual uh, observation. And the observation period was a minimum of two hours to up to approximately four hours. And they were, before leaving, would record the number of leftover chocolates by brand. So they point out that no previous studies were available on which they could base power uh, calculations for this study. <laughs> so they, they did do a power analysis. Chocolates left over were deemed lost to follow-up. They Results-wise, they found that 74% of chocolates were observed being eaten. The mean observation period was 254 minutes. Uh, so what's that? So four hours? Yep. Like Good. Uh, medium survival time of chocolate was 51 minutes. And the model of chocolate consumption was nonlinear. So it was initial rapid rate of consumption that slowed over time. <laughs> and I think they've fitted an exp- exponential decay model um, with survival half-life of 99 minutes. Just some that very, is fantastic. Very impressive graphs. That is some great statistical analysis. Oh, wow. So mean time to open, taken to open a box was 12 minutes. Quali Street chocolates survived longer than Rose's chocolates. And the highest percentage of chocolates were consumed by healthcare assistants and nurses, followed by doctors. Mm-hmm. So they did talk about the fact that uh, potentially there were more healthcare assistants on the wards than doctors and nurses. So, so maybe it's not actually the right. healthcare assistants guzzling them. I'm not so sure. Not about loitering that. around. Not the loitering. <laughs> That's it. Uh, yeah, and they do suggest that they need to do some further research on the area as well. I do like the twelve-minute wait, the the awkward moment where the chocolates are placed, and one is it? Well, oh, that's it. Should we? Shall we? Shall we? Shall we? Uh, let's uh, wait. Maybe. Twelve minutes. Yeah. yeah. Should we get a cup of tea first? Oh, let's, <laughs> that's it. Let's finish the ward round. We know that they're there. Yeah. Come back. Someone's opened them now. Well, they're open now. Uh, and and the um, competing interests section of the of the paper was hilarious. One of the authors advocates abstinence is the only effective way to uh, avoid chocolate overconsumption. And so on and so forth. Tell me, uh, what did you grab? That is, that is, thank you. That was a great, um, a great paper. So this is a paper also from the BMJ Christmas edition uh, from 2013, and the title of this is "Were James Bond's Drink Shaken Because of Alcohol-Induced Tremor?" <laughs> so this comes from a group based based in at the University of Nottingham. Uh, Graham Johnson, uh, Indra Agua, uh, and Patrick Davies, uh, notably Indra. Grua Agua is a associate professor of hepatology or the study of sort of diseases of the liver. Yeah, right. So this was a study where they took, uh, so I'm quite a, a, a James Bond fan, uh, where they took uh, 14 of his, the books are written by Ian Fleming. Yep. And I think most of them have now been uh, turned into films. And what they did is two of the authors, two of the authors of the study read the books and documented the number of days that were apparent during the stories. Yep. And the number of drinks consumed during during those days, and as they say, about four percent of uh, one of the reasons for it is they talk about alcohol consumption being you know bad for you uh, in terms of it's responsible for about four percent of deaths worldwide. However, they say that as we know, 
uh, James Bond, the quintessential British spy, uh, is the catchphrase of a vodka martini, shaken, not stirred. And so the results of this is across 12 of the 14 books, about 123 days were described. Uh, and of those, uh, Bond was unable to consume alcohol for 36 of them, uh, mainly due to external pressures, admission to hospital, incarcerations and rehabilitation. During the time he was able to drink, he consumed, uh, so the British use units of alcohol, which is probably very similar to a standard drink, 1150.15 standard drinks in 123 days. So how many is that a day? So taking into account days when he was able to drink, his average alcohol consumption was 92 units per week uh, or 1150 units over 87.5 days. If we use the days he was incarcerated and say they could have been included for drinking, that brings him down to 65 standard drinks or 65 units a week. In the most, the maximum daily consumption was 49.8 units a day. David Boone would be proud. David Boone would be proud. Uh, in, from, Russia, in, from Russia with love. Uh, What's the vodka? And off the days he was not incarcerated or unable to drink, he actually had 12.5 alcohol-free days. They then plotted... With Bond's career, his alcohol consumption over time. Uh, interestingly, his intake dropped in the middle of his career, yep. uh, but then increased towards the end. Well, he was probably suffering from spy burnout. <laughs> this is consistent. This consistent but variable lifetime drinking pattern has been reported in patients with alcoholic liver disease <laughs> in the past. The conclusions of the study were that James Bond's level of alcohol intake puts him at a higher risk of multiple alcohol-related diseases and an early death. The level of function as displayed in the books is potentially inconsistent <laughs> with the physical, mental, and indeed sexual functioning expected from someone drinking this much alcohol. We advise an immediate referral for further assessment and treatment, a reduction, or a reduction in alcohol consumption to safe levels, and suspect that the famous catchphrase, shaken not stirred, could be because of alcohol-induced tremor affecting his hands. <laughs> Are they, I've got to say, I mean, are they addiction specialists? Are they one of, uh, one of them? Sort of, one of them, interestingly, is a pediatric intensive care specialist. Right. So I'm not sure of his degree of expertise because, in the area. Like, like I'm, I'm no addiction specialist. I, I did work in drug and alcohol for a while, and mm. people say, oh, you know, people go and take these amount of substances, but then you get, we would get these guys rolling through the door, and he'd be like, "How did you manage to consume that much?" Mm. And like. There, there is a section of to be a good alcoholic, you need to be able to consume a lot of alcohol. Mm. If if you're a two pot screamer, you're not, you're, no, you're, you're, you're not a good, terrible alcoholic. Terrible alcoholic. I worked in a bottle shop when I was doing my arts degree in uh, Footscray, uh, which was of the jobs I've had, which has been many, being a long term academic, um, one of the most satisfying. It seems if you put a pallet of VB stubbies in the fridge at eight am on a Friday, so that they're really cold by about two o'clock, you're a good bloke. Uh, but I looked after a few people who um, I served a few people who <laughs> lived in rooming houses and such nearby. That when you had the five liter casks of wine on special, yep. would turn up daily mm. to pick up a five liter cask of wine, and for a good night, you might get two. Yeah, I don't know how you could drink five liters of oh, anything really—chocolate, no. milk, tea, whatever your you know, yep. drink Go. of choice might be. Ten liters seems a lot. That seems a lot. That's, well, maybe that's a good point to leave it. 
Um, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, hopefully we'll get you back on and we can talk some more medical stuff. At some yeah, point. Definitely. Thanks, Arthur. Right. No worries. Well, uh, that's the show for this week. Uh, tune in next week. Amy will be back. Thanks for listening. Thank you.